in some ways, the message this morning reflects the repeated message of that psalm. It is finished. I invite you to turn this morning to Judges and the 10th chapter. Judges and the 10th chapter. After the first five books of the Bible, then you have Joshua and then Judges. As we've been going through the book of Judges, we've especially seen this theme of the people of Israel. Instead of transforming the land that God had given them, into the kind of land that God wanted them to make it for his glory and for his praise and for their goodness and blessing, for their prosperity. Instead of transforming the land by living in obedience to God's commands, the the people of Israel were transformed by the world around them. They became more and more like the Canaanites. And so the canonization of God's promised people, God's blessed and chosen people, the canonization of God's people becomes a theme in the book of Judges. And we've seen as we've gone through the book how that God has brought different nations to come and bring judgment upon the people of Israel because of their sin and abandoning him. And we've seen how they, in response to that judgment, would call out on the Lord and how in different areas around the nation of Israel, in different locations and at different times, God would raise up judges, those who would deliver Israel from the affliction of those that God had sent to bring judgment. And it is in chapter 10 that we find the most extensive uh, record in the whole of Judges as to the rebellion of uh, the people of Israel against their God. This one instance here in Judges 10 has more words, more emphasis on the kind of rebellion that the people of Israel had gone into than anywhere else uh, in one place in Judges as you go throughout the book. They didn't just forsake the Lord and uh, not serve the Lord but they gave themselves over to all manner of idols. And they needed to repent. They needed to turn from those idols, and they needed to turn to the Lord. Yet, interestingly, God does not at the first uh, accept their call for help, their plea to the Lord. God does not Um, accept that plea. And so I'd like to uh, think about the nature of repentance and think about 
what we can learn about repentance, even by considering this text here in Judges 10. Let us begin in verse 6, and you'll see how flagrantly and how extensively the people of Israel rebelled against the Lord and rejected his path and fell wholeheartedly into the path of the nations around them. Judges 10, beginning in verse 6. Then the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord, served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the sons of Ammon, and the gods of the Philistines. Thus they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the sons of Ammon. They afflicted and crushed the sons of Israel that year. For 18 years they afflicted all uh, the sons of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in Gilead in the land of the Amorites. The sons of Ammon crossed the Jordan to fight against all Judah, Benjamin, and the sons of Ephraim, so that Israel was greatly distressed. Here in Israel's distress, they call on the Lord. You read of their cry in verse 10 and following. Then the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you, for indeed we have forsaken our God and served the Baals. The Lord said to the sons of Israel, Did I not deliver you from the Egyptians, the Amorites, the sons of Ammon, and the Philistines? Also when the Sidonians and the Malachites and the Manites oppressed you, you cried out to me, and I delivered you from their hands. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will no longer deliver you. Go and cry out to the gods which you have chosen. Let them deliver you in the time of your distress. The sons of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them. And serve the Lord, and he could bear the misery of Israel no longer. Here we have Israel's double plea to the Lord, double cry to the Lord, verse 10 and verse 15. What might we learn of repentance as we think on these uh, verses? Think on this passage of Scripture. Let's ask the Lord to help us to that end uh, as we look to the text. Let's bow. Lord, thank you that in the greatness of your mercy, you show your loving kindness repeatedly, again and again. Thank you that in the greatness of your mercy, you deliver us even from great sin again and again. Thank you that in your mercy, you give us hope 
for the future. Though we are sinners, yet given eternal life, if we look to your Son, if we put our whole hope in him, if we believe in the one who alone is worthy of our ultimate trust. I pray, Lord, that you would bless us as we listen to your word. I pray that you would get the glory by working in our hearts and our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Sometimes we emphasize things in various ways. Some little child might come home from third grade and crying to their mother say, I had a terrible day. And just the tears and uh, plea toward the mother um, gains a hearing, right? It gains a, a, a quick hearing. And, and probably a tender hearing from the mother. But sometimes, even that same kind of circumstance, you could have more emphasis. The child comes home from school and says, I had a terrible day. First, I put my math homework in my history folder and couldn't find it to turn it in. And then in recess, the bully, he pushed me down on the ground and everyone saw me needed to have help from the nurse. And then as I was coming home from school, I lost some of my homework assignments so I don't even know what I'm supposed to do. And the the Redundancy and the explanation and the uh, elaboration points out the emphasis of why this young child has had such a bad day. Well, listen to the emphasis that God gives when he has uh, written by his prophets so clearly, not just that Israel rebelled, but the flagrancy of their rebellion. It it is as if it were a sevenfold rebellion. You have seven particulars of those to whom the Israelites have gone after in serving. Verse number six, the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. That's the generalization. But then there's emphasis and elaboration. Emphasis by elaboration. They did evil again in the sight of the Lord. What did they do? They served the Baals. Not only the Baals, the Ashtaroth. Probably a reference to the male false deities, false gods, and the female false deities, false gods. Not only those two, but the gods of Aram, Sidon, Moab, Ammon, Philistines. Here, you have the most extensive list of the ways in which it appears at one 
uh, period in human in, in Israel's history, it appears as though various of the people of Israel were going after these various gods. Thus, end of verse six, they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. This is language of clear and obvious disobedience to the covenant. The covenant obligations that they had uh, with God, with Yahweh, they are no longer serving the Lord Yahweh. Instead, they're not serving him. The, the language there at the end of verse 6 is the same kind of language that's used in the beginning of verse 6. They served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. They did not serve the Lord. And so, we have emphasized the severity of Israel's rebellion. Rebellion is a good word. In this context, in any context where sin is involved. But, but here it's flagrant rebellion. Multiple ways in which they're not following the Lord. Multiple ways in which they're not serving the Lord. The response of God to that is found in verse 7. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel and he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the sons of Ammon. And we haven't seen this before and we won't see this later in the book of Judges. He doesn't bring one oppressor. Here's the, the, the time when he brings two oppressors. And so the greatness of uh, Israel's sin is clear here in this text. Multiple gods that they're going after, after two nations brought by God in judgment upon them. These Philistines and the sons of Ammon, they afflicted. What did the judgment look like? Verse 8, they afflicted and crushed the, the, the sons of Israel that year. They afflicted and crushed. Um, this word for crushed the sons of Israel, it's only used one other time in all of the Old Testament. It's a strong word. And the one time that it's used elsewhere points to the strength and the weight of the word. Do you know when this, this word is used? Or, or excuse me, I'm thinking of shattered and not, not crushed. Um, this word shattered, it's used of God shattering the Egyptians when he delivered Israel from Egypt. That's strong language. The, the word crushed is also interesting. The word crushed is the, the same word that's used when Abimelech, remember how he dies? When Abimelech is near the tower and some unnamed old lady heaves the stone over the, the side and it crushes his skull. And this is not a short affliction, verse 8. 
For 18 years they afflicted all the sons of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the Gilead in the land of the Amorites. The, the uh, particular language in the Hebrew is uh, hard to, 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 to understand. It seems as though the one year and the 18 years, notice the that year for 18 years, um, it's it's possible that what's be, trying to be relayed there is they came and they devastated one year in mass the Philistines and the uh, and the Amorites um, and uh, did I get that right uh, Ammonites I mean uh, the Ammonites the Philistines and Ammonites they came and devastated one year and then the the devastation was uh, so complete and so obvious that for eighteen years they're able to maintain uh, the the uh, oppression. Um, of the Israelites. In, in fact, not only length of time, but breadth of geography points to the severity of this judgment. Now, we, we explained last week in conjunction with with uh, Jer, verse 3 and 4, Jer the Gileadite arose, he was a Gileadite, he rose into Israel, 30 sons, and he had 30 cities in the land of Gilead. We explained where that land of Gilead was. And you'll notice uh, that uh, this, all the sons of Israel were, who were beyond the Jordan in Gilead in the land of the Amorites. Those are the ones who were uh, afflicted and crushed uh, by the Ammonites. Um, uh, um, the Gilead is to the east of the Jordan River, south of the Sea of Galilee, and north of the, uh, north of the Dead Sea. So that area um, further from the Mediterranean, on the other side of the Jordan from the Mediterranean, uh, between the Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee. And at least three tribes of the Israelites inhabit that area. But the Ammonites don't just oppress those who are near to them geographically. The Ammonites, their oppression goes so far even as to cross the Jordan. Verse 9, the sons of Ammon cross the Jordan to fight against Judah, Benjamin, and the house of Ephraim. So they go uh, even further uh, inland, as it were, from, from uh, the direction of where they're coming, uh, further into the interior of uh, Israel's stronghold, the area of uh, the tribe of Judah, Benjamin, and Ephraim. So that Israel, what's the synopsis of the whole evaluation of the severity of the judgment that God brings? So that Israel was greatly distressed. Now, it is proper for us to realize when we come under great distress, or when we come under distress due to sin, the proper response is to call on the Lord. The proper response is to repent. And, and that's the, the first thing that I would emphasize about repentance. Where there is sin, repentance is appropriate. Where sin is, repentance should follow. And it seems as though that is what is happening in the people of Israel at this point. Right? The next verse. Israel was greatly distressed. Then the sons of Israel cried out against the Lord, saying, 
We have sinned against you, for indeed we have forsaken our God and served the Baals. And that, that word are is important. They, they recognize that Yahweh should have been the one that they were serving. They recognize that they've put away serving the one that they should have served, and instead they've gone after false gods, idols, those who those uh, idols which cannot save. And there are all kinds of things we might do when sin is around, when sin is in our lives. There are all kinds of things that we might do that will not bring full and ultimate uh, deliverance. Here, The Israelites do what they should do. They cry out to the Lord. There are all kinds of things that we do sometimes with our sins. We hide them to try to make them seem smaller than they are. Or we uh, take this sin that's really bad and it has really obvious really obvious uh, uh, consequences. So maybe uh, alcoholism. And uh, that sin eventually works its way into your body and the, the, the kinds of things that it does to your body are not pretty. They're gruesome. And so someone might say, well, I'm going to get rid of... Uh, Beer and wine and alcohol, and instead I'll just uh, I'll just uh, uh, um, do Oreos in excess, right? I'll, I'll do gluttony instead of alcoholism. I'll, I'll trade one sin for a sin that's a little less quick in its possibly less quick in its uh, consequences. I'll trade the sin of alcohol for the sin of gluttony. And, and don't we, many times I think this is exactly what's going on in uh, secular, uh, secular counselors and secular therapists. They say, your life is really bad because you have this problem. Well, let's just substitute something else. That's not the proper response to sin. You you can trade sins. You can hide sins. The proper response to sin is crying to the Lord, going to the Lord, repenting. And that's what we see in verse 10. The sons of Israel cried out to the Lord. They, They admit what they've done. We have sinned against you. And this is good for us to teach our children. It's good for us to to be reminded of. Uh, When there is a a fault, we name what we've done that is wrong. And we ask forgiveness for that which we've done which is wrong. We have sinned against you. They name their sin. Forsaken our God and serve the Baals. But what's um, what's troubling, uh, 
just on a, on a surface reading of this uh, text, what might be uh, perceived as troubling is the Lord's response. When they apparently repent in verse 10, he does not immediately forgive. He does not immediately send a deliverer. It isn't the response that we're expecting. Right? He, he has in the past in the book of Judges, they cry, and what does he do? Send someone. In, in one instance, he sent the prophet before he sent the deliverer. But here, instead of uh, uh, sending a deliverer, uh, he, he revamps, he, he re, uh, recalls for them their history. The Lord said to the sons of Israel, did I not deliver you from the Egyptians, Amorites, Ammon, Philistines, Sidonians, Amalekites, Manites? Uh, interestingly, uh, seven uh, false gods and false categories of gods, and then seven uh, that, that the Lord, he, he's repeatedly delivered them from oppression. I delivered you from their hands. End of verse 12. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will no longer deliver you. Now, uh, there are two ways of, of uh, understanding the text here. And it's, it's not certain that one is clear and the other is not clear. I'm, I'm uh, myself about like 80-20 in how I understand this text. The, the one reading of this text is that the Israelites, even though they said they were uh, sinning and they came to the Lord and cried out, they weren't really repentant in verse 10. And that uh, later afterwards, uh, after God confronts them, uh, they, then they, they become really repentant, actually repentant. Um, in verse uh, in verse 15, then the sons of Israel said to the Lord, this is after the Lord says, uh, if, if, if you've sinned in this way again and again, I'm not going to uh, deliver you. You go and you ask your gods to deliver you. They'll deliver you. And the, the sarcasm is burning. That's, that's the point of the text. How, how can a God that doesn't have life Give any deliverance? The answer is obvious. And so God says, they'll deliver you. What is Israel's reply? Verse 15, we have sinned. They admit again that they are in the wrong. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. So verse 15 and 16 together with verse 16 mentioning that they put away the foreign gods and served the Lord. That's taken by some to, to be uh, Israel actually repenting. Israel authentically, uh, um, honestly repenting. Um, and, and I can see how you could uh, think that way because of the uh, way that verse 15 runs into verse 16. The other way to understand this is that God is not under obligation to forgive us when, uh, when we 
are sinners and we as sinners uh, don't come uh, to the Lord and aren't faithful to him uh, in the aftermath of salvation. Um, We have sinned against you in verse 10. Sounds like uh, repentance. The same as verse 15, we have sinned. Okay. Um, is, is the Lord under obligation if we, uh, if we do something that looks like, sounds like repentance? Is the Lord under obligation to forgive? So suppose someone hears a gospel message. Because we are sinners, we will be judged by being apart from God for all eternity. And the only way that you can have hope of being with God and having that sin barrier removed is by asking Jesus Christ to be your deliverance from that sin. And someone, in response to that, might say, That's me, I believe. I repent of my sin. And we don't know by the words, the authenticity, the the honesty of their repentance. That, as the New Testament makes clear, is going to be shown in the course of the, the future of their lives. They might... Uh, in, in the churches that I've come from, uh, it was not uncommon after a salvation message for the pastor to invite someone to walk down the aisle and to talk to the pastor and to pray with the pastor a, a prayer of, for, of, of repentance from sin and, and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and it's important to remember That it's not the walking down the aisle that saves someone. It's not the saying of the right words that saves someone. In fact, the second point that I would make and emphasize here, the second point about repentance is, repentance does not earn our salvation. A person's repentance does not earn their salvation. A person's repentance doesn't give them merit in God's eyes. So that someone could say, I repented. I did something good. Lord, I deserve to be saved. Or, as some might read what is happening here in uh, Judges 10, I repented not just once, I repented twice, and I repented uh, to the extent that I got rid of the, the idols. Uh, verse number seven, so they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. The extent of the repentance or the, the, the obvious uh, expansion of their repentance. So God, God will forgive if I repent enough. That's not how God works. God doesn't forgive us 
on the basis of seeing some good in us because we've repented. God doesn't forgive us because we've repented in sackcloth and ashes with lots of tears and lots of emotion. The basis of God's deliverance is God's mercy. Repentance doesn't earn God's salvation. The basis of the the greatness and joy of God's salvation is God. This this, uh, is emphasized again and again as you go to the as you go to the, uh, as you go to the, through the Old Testament. Uh, so, for example, this is Joel 2 and verse 12. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. That's language of repentance. Don't go the way that you are going. Come to me. Return to me with all your heart and with fasting, weeping, and mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments. Don't just have an outward show. The degree of the outward show is not what will, will, get, repent, what will get salvation from the Lord. Now return to the Lord your God. Why? What's the basis? For he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and relenting of evil. Who knows whether he will not return and relent. The Lord will return and relent and leave a blessing behind him, even a grain offering and drink offering for the Lord your God. The, the ground of our salvation, the glory of our salvation is not in our contrition. The glory of our salvation is in the, the, the mercy and greatness of God's loving kindness. God's mercy. We saw that uh, even in our, I don't know where I put my bulletin, uh, even in our scripture reading, uh, not scripture reading, in Psalm 103. Psalm 103, where we, yeah, so it was a scripture reading, not the responsive reading. But Psalm 103 we saw this in Psalm 103. Verse number 10. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those for, who fear him. Uh, the greatness of God's loving kindness is the thing that brings us hope and joy in our salvation. Or, verse 15 and following, As for man, his days are like grass. As a flower of the field, so he flourishes. When the wind has passed over it, it is no more, and its place acknowledges it no longer. The result of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. But, verse 17, The loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children. The the kindness of God in giving us salvation, it's not because we have faith. That's not the ultimate foundation of our salvation. 
The ultimate foundation isn't our repentance or the extent of our repentance. The ultimate foundation is God, in his mercy and grace, forgives those who come to him. Some think about God in totally unbiblical ways. Religion is a great game. You only need to know a few rules. And Yahweh is a great God. If you happen to need him and want to use him, you can just put a coin into the uh, dispenser and he'll dispense out forgiveness. That's not the God that we serve. And, And I think we see a little bit of that even here in Judges 10. God makes it clear that other gods can't save. But then, verse 15, when the sons of Israel uh, a second time repent, they say, we have sinned, do to us whatever seems good to you, only please deliver us. So they put away the foreign gods and from among them and serve the Lord. What's the result? And he could bear the misery of Israel no longer. The the language is literally the language of God's pity. He had pity on Israel. It was the Lord's pity for Israel that led him to deliver them. Not the flagrancy of their, their repentance, not the a degree of their repentance, but God's mercy. And I think that this is, this is uh, implied, this uh, same way of thinking, that, that it isn't that Israel wasn't repenting properly the first time and then they do repent properly the second time. That's implied in God's response to the first, uh, the first uh, repentance, uh, wording of repentance. When God responds, what does God say? Does God say, you haven't, uh, you haven't uh, repented appropriately? No, God says, I know you. Again and again, I've delivered you. And you keep on going after other gods. I'm not going to deliver you again. Joel 2, where I read from, it places the hope of deliverance in divine grace rather than human sorrow. There is not uh, any benefit that is received because uh, it's coerced out of God. It is freely given. I think that uh, even this time of year, this is really important to remember. Um, it, was, it was a few years ago that in the UK, a news outlet put out this news blurb uh, around Easter time. Uh, I'll quote, Devote Mexicans took to the streets on Easter Sunday and were whipping each other in a twist on tradition. 
Usually, the hardcore Catholic faithful parade through the streets flagellating themselves as an act of penitence as sinners and to mark the suffering of Christ. But some in Mexico appear to have gone a stage further and started whipping one another instead. Men in the Mexican town of Soltepec uh, took to the streets on Saturday in a tradition that is supposed to cleanse the body of sin during Holy Week. The tradition is believed to date back to the 16th century, and here is uh, so sorrowful as I read. Uh, the elders of the community are said to be worried the meaning of this act of faith could be lost over time and hope that younger participants will continue the tradition in the future. This time of year, leading up to Easter, you can see pictures from Mexico, you can see pictures from the Philippines, and people are whipping themselves, and in this case, they're whipping others, as if the degree of their repentance would earn them God's forgiveness. This is not how God operates. God, in his mercy, in the greatness of his loving kindness, opens his hands to forgive, opens his hands to deliver. Might we realize that repentance is the proper response to sin. But even as we realize that repentance is the proper response to sin, let us not think that our repentance is doing something to merit that deliverance that God gives. Let us bow and commit ourselves even to this truth before the Lord. Lord, I pray that you would make it in our hearts a conviction that we cannot be swayed from, that it is not the degree of our contrition that brings your kind word of forgiveness. It is not any work of catharsis, flagellation, which brings your grace into our circumstances. But as we humbly and honestly repent, you forgive because you are great in your loving kindness. And you have promised that if we sin and confess our sins, you're faithful and just to forgive us our sins, not on the basis of the degree of our flagellation or self-infliction of any kind of, any variety of pain. But Lord, because you are great and kind and merciful and your loving kindness is clear. So, Lord, might this message be a message that we take to others? We can never earn or merit salvation, but Christ has brought us to the fountain spring of hope and life as we trust in him.
pray that that might be us to your glory and for your praise. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.